I'm Tommy Salmons. This is year zero. There I go with the upspeak again. Like I am AOC. Or a valley girl. And I'm really bad at that. So. Happy 4th of July. First thing in the damn morning. Thursday, July 4th. I have a topical episode today, as y'all might expect, and as you've probably come to expect, it's not going to be all sunshines and rainbows and flowers and chocolate and unicorns flying out your ass. It's just not what I do here. I like to keep it real. I've watched some Chappelle show, though. I know what it's like when keeping it real goes wrong. I need, need some of you motherfuckers watching my back. But, all right, July 4th. It's the day that we celebrate independence in the United States of America. Independence Day. A day nationalists romanticized to the nth degree. They got their magic song, the great sky cloth, freedom, and fireworks. I think I vomited in my mouth a little bit. What you don't hear a lot of times is for 150 years, the American colonies happily served the British crown. Um, if you would have pulled the colonies, the, the citizens of the colonies, only 10 years prior to the adoption of the Declaration of the Independence, they would have overwhelmingly supported British rule. So what happened? Most of us know, you know, a general overview, um, which is basically what I'm going to cover here, but I just thought it was appropriate. Uh, in 1768, British troops landed in America to enforce heavy tax burdens inflicted on the colonies. And after a couple of years of quartering, feeding, and being abused by this police force, the colonists had had enough. This eventually led to the Boston Massacre in 1770. Um, an angry mob engaged a patrol of British soldiers the mob began assaulting the police force with snowballs stuffed with pieces of brick. The soldiers eventually opened fire and killing five colonists. Uh, people of the colonies were really angry over the deaths. This did not stop the crown. This did not stop Britain. This did not stop the government. The Crown continued to levy taxes, and finally, in 1773, tensions led to the Boston Tea Party. This is when a bunch of angry colonists dumped 342 chests of tea into the Boston Harbor. Those 342 chests of tea were private property of the British East India Company. They were destroying private property for the point of revolution. In 1774, 
trade with Great Britain was prohibited uh, officially. And finally, in 1775, the revolution began. I assume that had the British had the language we had to have today, that the colonists that were fighting the revolution, which was only about a third of the colonists, if I remember correctly, were going to be called terrorists, which is what they would be called today. But if nothing else, they were definitely being accused of committing treason. Now, in 1776, Thomas Paine released Common Sense. Thomas Paine is often labeled as an atheist. Um, if nothing else, he was probably the most anarchist of the 18th century American writers. So, given that the first part of Common Sense is one of my favorite pieces of literature I want to read a little bit of Common Sense in which Thomas Paine is describing government now he's not the first writer to ever do this and he wasn't the last Rothbard did a good job on describing government too in Anatomy of the State um, but this is one of my favorites because Common Sense was a pamphlet. It's something you could probably sit down and read in about an hour. And it was, he, he didn't pull no punches. He got straight to the point. And you have, there are no questions about what Thomas Paine thought about government. So I'm going to read about four chapters. I mean, four, not four chapters, about four paragraphs here, just to kind of give you the real, the scoop of how Thomas Paine viewed government. <clears throat> Excuse me. Some writers have so confounded society with government as to leave little or no distinction between them, whereas they are not only different, but have different origins. Society is produced by our wants and government by our wickedness. The former promotes our happiness positively by uniting our affections, the latter negatively by restraining our vices. Think prohibition. The one encourages intercourse. The other creates distinctions. The first is a patron, the last a punisher. Society in every state is a blessing, but government, even it in its best state is but a necessary evil in its worst state, an intolerable one for when we suffer or are exposed to the same miseries by a government, which we might expect in a country without government, our calamity is heightened by reflecting that we furnish the means by which we suffer. Government like dress is the badge of lost innocence. The palaces of kings are built upon the ruins of the bowers of paradise. For were the impulses of conscience clear, uniform and irresistibly obeyed, man would need no other lawgiver. 
But that not being the case, he finds it necessary to surrender up a part of his property to furnish means for the protection of the rest. And this he is induced to do by the same prudence which in every other case advises him out of two evils to choose the least. Wherefore, security being the true design and end of government, it unanswerably follows that whatever form thereof appears most likely to ensure it to us with the least expense and greatest benefit is preferable to all others. I draw my idea of the form of government from a principle in nature which no art can overturn, viz., that the more simple anything is, the less liable it is to be disordered, and the easier repaired when disordered. And with this maximum, maxim in view, I offer a few remarks on the so much boasted constitution of England that it was noble for the dark and slavish times in which it was erected is granted. When the world was overrun with tyranny, the least remove therefrom was a glorious rescue, but that it is imperfect, subject to convulsions, and incapable of producing what it seems to promise is easily demonstrated. Absolute governments, though the disgrace of human nature, have this advantage with them. They are simple. If the people suffer, they know the head from which their suffering springs, know likewise the remedy, and are not bewildered by a variety of causes and cures. But the Constitution of England is so exceedingly complex that the nation may suffer for years together without being able to discover in which part the fault lies." Some will say in one and some in another, and every political physician will advise a different medicine. Now, I went through that part where he speaks about England because it, it reminds me of America today in such a way that everybody, it seems like everybody's trying to treat a symptom. Nobody wants to get to the heart of the actual issue. So in order to do that, they, there's 500 different solutions to problems that, that may have a simple you know, solution to it. So he goes on into into the second part and he discusses um the creation of monarch and um he discusses it through a biblical lens and one of the things he says and i'm paraphrasing because i don't know i don't have the exact quote right in front of me um, but I do have a general paraphrase written down. If you give me one second, I'll pull it up. It is right here where he says, in the early ages of the world, there were no kings. And I think he attributes this to biblical uh, chronology. Uh, I'm sorry. Anyway, I'll go back to this. In the early ages of the world, there were no kings, and as a consequence, there were no wars. 
So he's telling you right there, like when you're choosing the least of these evils, like you are, you're in, in government in your mind becomes the least of the evils. Now in my mind, it's not the least of the evils, but he's saying that you are, you know, putting yourself at risk of being thrown into a war or, or your children being thrown into a war or a war being started and you having to fund that war because this is the chaos that Kings create. So, I, I I I always look at that when looking at the revolution because that was such an important text in moving forward. That was published in January of seventeen seventy six and in June the, the that had spread all around the colonies Many of the colonists have re had read it. They understood it. They knew what he was talking about. And many were in agreement with him. And in June, Thomas Jefferson was tasked with writing the Declaration of Independence. Um, he spent two weeks reading George Mason, Thomas Paine, Ben Franklin, and others as he established a text that exhibited the most prominent thoughts, beliefs, and grievances of the colonies uh, about the crown. After heavy editing by members of the Continental Congress, the declaration was approved on July 4th, 1776. And what I find really interesting in the Declaration of Independence is if you read just the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence, which I can pull it up right here, if you give me one second. Just the first two paragraphs, I think it's it's either three or four times, it is mentioned that a government should be thrown off, like get rid of these these sons of bitches. Okay? And it's it's like three or four times when it when it's when it's it's mentioned. I'll I'll read the first two paragraphs. It's real quick. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to, to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the cause which impel them to the separation. So just there in that one paragraph, you're looking at twice. He's saying, we got to get rid of these motherfuckers, right? Then this is probably the most popular set, uh, part of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, derived deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. I can't remember the last time I consented to be governed. Anyway, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely 
to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former system of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He goes on from there to list the grievances of the co- of of the colonies of the colonialists and uh he he gets into detail um they they edited out a few things he had uh, Jefferson had written in his remarks that he had one of the it was probably the biggest edit uh, of the entire declaration of independence but he blamed the 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 king of england for the slave trade in america and it's one of those weird nuances that jefferson had he owned slaves but he was against slavery and he was working tirelessly to write the uh legislation that freed slaves he uh went so far as to um working with James Madison, I believe it was, and they set up, uh, or no, James Monroe, and they set up Liberia in Africa. And and if you look still to this day, the capital of Liberia in Africa, which is on the western coast of Africa, north of Namibia, the, uh, <clears throat> when I say north, I think it's like two countries north, two or three countries north of Namibia. But um, the the capital of Liberia is still to this day Monrovia, named after James Monroe. Just a little side note there. So after the revolution started in 1775, the, the Declaration of Independence was voted on and it was it was accepted in 1776. Now the revolution continued till 1782. Um, America as all of you, I hope, know. Jesus, if one of you fucking doesn't know that America won the revolutionary, the U.S. revolution, if they, if you don't fucking know that, stop listening to my goddamn podcast. Because I cannot be associated with goddamn morons. I'm just kidding. I know all of you know that shit. Um, so, they, the revolution continued into 1782. Um and it's it's widely believed that without France and um, the the uh, the Prussian Major General Baron von Struben um, that they wouldn't have won it. Um, it's it hasn't it's not reported like it, we're not taught 
in grave detail these facts or these ideas um but it's it, i i've i've read in many places and uh in documentaries i've seen that george washington was actually kind of subpar in his ability to to uh be a general and that he was having a really hard time and until baron von struben came and started teaching some of the prussian style of fighting methods which prussia I, we've covered it in previous episodes they were known for their their fighting they were known for their their battle techniques and their ability to perform during war and that that really bailed george washington out of a of a deep hole and that's really what put us over the top and put the u.s over the top in the in the revolutionary war and um won the won the war for them and I, I i really wish if that were the case and if there are documents to prove that 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 von struben would start getting at this point you know we're supposed to be shooting fireworks at each other and discuss the deaths of jefferson and adams on july 4th 1826 and how that was a fairy tale ending and how supposedly adams last words were Jefferson's still around or something of that nature. But this is year zero, guys. That's not the way I do things. I'm not going to tell you we all live, you know, uh, with liberty and justice for all. Must be 18 or older. Void where prohibited. Not available in all states. <laughs> Like thank Doug Stanhope for that. That's a hilarious one. But by now we should all be freedom loving, constitution loving conservatives, right? Yeah. We're all patriots now, right? We all are conservatives just like Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, Madison, and Adams, right? Newsflash. They weren't conservatives, man. They were radicals. They picked up arms and overthrew a government. They committed treason. They were revolutionaries. They'd be labeled homegrown terrorists today. Their compound would be raided. Their children and women burnt. They'd be murdered in cold blood. And most people would cheer it on. But tell me honestly, what do you really think about the, the founders? What do you really think about the people who were involved in the American Revolution? Do you really think the guys starting a revolution over a 3% tax would be satisfied with voting for change? Would they accept a militarized police force? What would they think of a standing army? I suggest you open that constitution you love so much. Specifically, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 12. Find out the answer about the standing army. Would they tolerate the NSA? All the spying apparatuses. 
All this secrecy. No such agency. What would they think of the CIA? Operation Mockingbird. MK Ultra. Iran Contra. How about the FBI? Or the ATF? Whose side would they be on in Waco? Or the Bundy Ranch? What would they think of Daniel Shaver's murder? Or the murder of Eric Garner? What would they think of subsidies for GM? Or bailing out the banks? Social Security? 40% tax rate? How about welfare? Or national parks? What about the war in Yemen? Or Somalia? Or Libya? Or Syria? How about Afghanistan? What would they say about Iran? Or Iraq? Vietnam? Korea? A coup in Chile? A coup in Iran? A coup in Honduras? Black ops to kill Fidel Castro? The Cold War? What would they think about blowback? What would they think about fractional reserve banking? The Federal Reserve? What would they think of the post office? The DMV? So you got to ask yourself, what are you actually trying to conserve? You trying to conserve that fascist FDR's New Deal in which the corporations conglomerate with the can create a conglomerate with the federal government? Is that what you're trying to conserve? Is that is that what it is? Or are you only trying to conserve your own personal comforts? The way of life you're accustomed to at any and all expense, whether liberty at home or life abroad. And if that's it, what other situation without the act of government, without government force involved, in what other situation would you bring death and destruction, steal people's liberty for your gain? And be okay with it. And if that sits well with you, okay. We'll get there. But first I want to cover one of my favorite quotes. One of my favorite 4th of July quotes. John Quincy Adams. July 4th. 1821. America does not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She well knows that by enlisting under other banners than her own, were they even the banners of foreign independence, 
she would involve herself beyond the power of extrication in all the wars of interest and intrigue, of individual avarice, envy and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standards of freedom. Well, was John Quincy Adams just a pussy? How about Thomas Jefferson? Thomas Jefferson a pussy? He wasn't much for war. Actually, this book I'm reading, Presidents of War, there's this really interesting part about Thomas Jefferson and his view of a standing army. In 1794... Wary of Atlantic battles between Britain and France, Congress had grudgingly approved President George Washington's appeal to build six mighty frigates. Unlike Washington and his successor, John Adams, President Jefferson treated the U.S. Navy like an unlovable stepchild. Seeking to trim the entire federal government, he wished to minimize the nation's standing military force, which he believed had the dangerous potential to draw it into unnecessary wars. When Jefferson took power in 1801, he cited the peace Adams had recently concluded with France as an excuse to have the military's $5 million budget, including the $2.1 million annual stipend for the Navy. Jefferson's designs against the Navy were so notorious that four men refused his request to be Secretary of the Navy before he appointed a middling Baltimore lawyer, Robert Smith. The president ordered Smith to fire two-thirds of enlisted Navy men and mothball most U.S. frigates in order to avoid a skirmish on the Atlantic that might draw the country into war. See, Jefferson hated war. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for the founders. And not because I think they were right on everything, because I don't. And if you think anybody's right on everything, you're just a groupie. And if you want to be a groupie, go follow a rock band. Get out of politics. Politics that need groupies. Trump has enough groupies for everybody. But what they did after the revolution... They came together and they wrote the Constitution of the United States. And it's not a perfect document. There are flaws in it. Things about it I don't like. I kind of like the Articles of Confederation a little bit more, but even it's imperfect. But what they did with the Constitution is they set a high bar. They set a really high bar for them to aim at. And to shoot at. And before the ink was dry. Don't get me wrong. Before the ink even dried. Congress and the president began to violate the Constitution. Washington had his standing army. Adams had his alien and sedition acts. Jefferson had his Louisiana Purchase. And every president, every Congress since then has fallen short of that idea. Of that bar. Because that bar is really high. Unfortunately for us. And for the nation as a whole. That bar. 
isn't the goal anymore. No one has aimed at that bar in many, many years. See, the United States had presidents that changed that. There was a President Abraham Lincoln. There was President Truman. There was Teddy Roosevelt. And last, but certainly not least, there was a Woodrow Wilson. And these guys didn't even try to hit that bar. No. They didn't like that bar. That bar did not offer them unlimited monarchical power. Only one bar would offer them that kind of power. Imperialism. Empire. So they set that bar to empire. And they went against everything that John Quincy Adams warned about. They got involved in military adventurism. Number one curse of empire. And what empire does, it enslaves the people at home. It dominates destroys and murders people abroad all for the moneyed interests of the establishment and the elite so you can't have a republic and an empire together because a republic's ultimate goal is to limit itself for its citizens Liberty and security from that government, from that republic. Whereas an empire isn't worried about its citizens' liberty or security. It's worried about its power and influence. It's worried about its wealth. And its domination. So if you're a conservative looking to reinstitute that bar of a constitutional republic, reinstitute those types of political characters into the system and reclaim that ideal of a more perfect union, I have much more in common with you than a conservative who's only interested in conserving 
the power, dominance, influence, and strength of the United States on the world stage as an empire. Because the conservative interested in preserving the empire does not care about liberty. They don't care about justice. They care only about the benefits that they receive from the domination of the military force. I don't see how somebody can claim to be a freedom lover or a lover of justice. Or a lover of the Constitution while defending the Empire. And lucky for me, there is still freedom of association. So I will disassociate from you very quickly if that is your stance. I'm Tommy Salmons. Late. <laughs>